I think a future in which there aren't jobs for humans because machines are doing the jobs could be a great world. It's going to be very much how we look at work and how we look at leisure. If we get this right, if we transition successfully to a world in which humans don't have to do jobs, we could have another renaissance. We could have humans liberated to do the things that they want to do and to do the things that will um, give them really fulfilling lives. That inside everybody there is a sportsman, an adventurer, a painter, a, a dancer. And at the moment, everybody goes to jobs, to their jobs, you know, nine to five every day. It crushes the soul out of them and they have no energy for anything. Let's take the jobs away and liberate the humans. Hi, I'm Paul Miller and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today to talk about a fascinating topic. The title of this is What Seven-Year-Olds Need to Learn Now to Thrive in an AI World of Work. And my two guests who I heard interviewed on BBC Radio and thought had a fascinating conversation is Angus Knowles-Cutler. Angus is the Vice Chairman and London Office Managing Partner for Deloitte. He also is a specialist in the Chinese market. Angus, interestingly, has just come back from uh, quite a senior UK delegation to to China. Uh, He has extensive cross-border experience, having visited or worked in a 134 countries and territories. That's a, an incredible uh, number. So I'm delighted to have Angus on the program. And my other guest is Callum Chase. Callum is a writer and much sought after speaker on artificial intelligence. Um, his books are uh, on AI are The Economic Singularity, about the prospect of widespread technological unemployment, which certainly we'll get into, and surviving AI. Uh, he also wrote Pandora's Brain, a techno-thriller about the first superintelligence. Um, and we'll have more show notes um, when the podcast comes up. So delighted to have you both on the program today. Uh, good to be here. Likewise. So really for both of you, uh, I mean, AI and work seems to have been a topic on everybody's lips in 2017. I mean, even my 96-year-old mum is asking about it. So so tell me, well, why do you think this topic is so front and, and centre now as, as AI, artificial intelligence, is, is, is not a new idea? Um, Angus, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, no, happy to. And I think you're absolutely right, Paul, that uh, it's not a new subject. Um, I was, I was um, as you were speaking, just thinking about it. I th- I, certainly the first reference I can think of um, to artificial intelligence goes right back to the, the Hebrew Bible, the Talmud, when uh, the first golem was created um, from, 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 from dust. And, and uh, in the Jewish tradition, it obviously carries on, you know, into the 16th century, the rabbi of Prague, uh, uh, told the story of, uh, of of the golem being created, uh, clearly early artificial intelligence to protect the uh, 
the Jewish ghetto of, of Prague. So for a could, long time, could you, I think, sorry, Angus, could you just explain that that reference because your your knowledge of the uh, Talmud's better than mine. Okay. Um, so, so just so explain the story. To, if you go back to the the Talmud, which is the um, essentially the, the Jewish uh, original Old Testament of ours. Uh, Adam was created um, uh, from from dust, and he was called a golem. And a golem is essentially a, a Hebrew idea of, of artificial intelligence. And that tradition carried on you know, in Jewish communities throughout the world. And uh, probably most famously, the rabbi of Prague in the late, teens, late 16th century, by repute, created a golem, which was a, an artificial human being, with an artificial intelligence mm. to protect the um, ghetto of uh, Prague from anti-Semitic attacks. And, and the reason I, I mention it is I just think this is, a you know, the, the, for thousands of years, we've been looking for to simulate artificial intelligence. I think the difference uh, now, Paul, is that it's becoming much more of a reality. Uh, and in some ways, you know, having just come back from China and obviously spending time in the United States as well, there does seem to be a race, particularly between... U.S. commercial businesses and perhaps Chinese state bank enterprises in terms of advancing in artificial intelligence. And obviously in the United Kingdom, we're making our uh, investments as well. But it seems that um, it's really gathered pace because of breakthroughs both in computing power and also breakthroughs in machine learning, which it does seem to me to be, to be actually accelerating faster than people thought for even five, ten years ago. Mm. OK. And um, Callum, what's your what's your take on this and and um, why why it's so current now. Yeah, picking up on, on what Angus said, he's absolutely right. Machine learning is the thing that's made all the difference. Uh, back in 2012, there was a big bang in the field of artificial intelligence, which, strictly speaking, is, is as a science, is, is about 60 years old. It got going at the Dartmouth Conference in 1956. But in 2012, um, a team of researchers led by Jeff Hinton in Toronto worked out how to successfully apply an existing branch of statistics called machine learning to artificial intelligence. And in particular, a subset of machine learning known as deep learning, which is also a kind of rebranding of neural networks, which has been around since the beginning of the science of AI. The, that was made possible, partly because Hinton and his team are brilliant, but also because uh, much more powerful computers were available and much, much more data was available. So those are two of the ingredients that you need. The third is very smart people to wrangle the algorithms. As a result of this breakthrough, this big bang, machines are now as good at pattern recognition as humans are in many areas. So they're better at facial recognition than us. They're overtaking us in speech recognition. And these were not, as Angus says, these were not expected to happen so quickly. Um, it was not expected, for instance, that a, that a machine would beat the world's best player of Go for 10 years or so. And it happened last year. So the reason why it's all in the papers at the moment is that AI now, for the first time in its life, it works. It makes money. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. And I suppose the other um, you know, uh, point to it is that people are starting to ask the question, so where do, where do I fit into this? And, and I've noticed that almost kind of irrespective of the work that people do, they're, they're starting to ask themselves, so how resilient is the skill set that I've got, the work that I've got? And, and there appear to be, from what I can see, two quite different takes on the implications for work. 
perhaps if I sort of um, describe the one as the, you know, what Yuval Noah Harari, author of Sapiens and Homo Deus, calls the useless class. So there's a group of people who are simply left workless through AI or another um, group, um, which is the sort of don't worry, we'll, we've always invented lots of new work and lots of new roles. And, and that's what we're, we're going to do this time. Callum, maybe you can start off with what, what, what's your view on this, um, the, these two scenarios? Yeah, I, I don't like either of them. Harari's books are excellent and highly recommended, but, um, and, and I, I think his scenario of the gods and the useless is not something to be dismissed. However, I don't believe that people have to have jobs in order to be worthwhile human beings. And I think there's two classes of people who show that, comfortably retired people and aristocrats. Um, no jobs and no sign of existential despair. I think a future in which there aren't jobs for humans because machines are doing the jobs could be a great world. And I think it's probably coming. We don't know for sure, but I think our job is to make sure it's a very good future. The other side of the argument, the idea that um, technological unemployment can't happen because it hasn't happened in the past is frankly silly. Um, Past performance is no guarantee of future outcome. If it was, we wouldn't be able to fly. And in fact, there has been massive widespread unemployment because of past rounds of automation. And that was the horse. In, in 1915, there were 21 and a half million horses working on American farms. And now there are none. And the horse population in America now is about 2 million. So that's a really big wave of unemployment. And we don't know, as I say, we don't know for sure. But it does seem to me very likely, having thought about this a lot, that in a generation or so, not tomorrow, not next year, but in a generation or so, we may have very, very large numbers of people, quite possibly a majority of the population, not being able to do anything for money that a machine can't do cheaper, better and faster. And our job, as I say, is to make that a very, very good outcome, which I believe is possible. OK, that's fascinating. And um, Angus, where, where do you uh, how do you approach this? crucial question. Well, there was a, actually, I think, a very worthwhile and interesting survey that the Pew Institute in the US conducted a couple of years ago, where they surveyed a very wide number of experts uh, in related fields. So, futurologists, technologists, uh, economists, um, a, a wide range of people uh, on the very question of, of looking to the future. And very interesting, it's certainly my experience of talking to people who've thought wide about the field, the audience split right down the middle, pretty much 50-50. 50% of people saw saw us with a very, very positive um, future, uh, almost utopian, and the other half saw a very dystopian future of mass unemployment and concentration of wealth in a, in a few people's hands and all the social distru- distress and disruption that goes with it. Uh, I'm, I'm probably with Callum that I don't think either actually uh, have to be the case, but we're going to have to have a fundamental rethink of the way we work and again like Callum I, I'm, I, I would agree that you know the past isn't isn't a, uh, necessarily a fair indication of the future but I think there are some historians economic historians taking now a very good look at what's actually happened in the first industrial revolution and if we think we are going through a second industrial revolution trying to see what lessons there are in that and the conclusion has to be that although Looking back now, since the first industrial revolution started in in Britain in the late 18th century, we've seen a 20-fold increase in uh, household income in the United Kingdom. It didn't happen in a linear fashion. In fact, the first 50 or 60 years 
post-industrial revolution, it was a, it was a pretty distressing time for people in the um, uh, in the vanguard of it. And you know, I'm from Bradford, and, and I grew up in Bolton, so I grew up in those early, early industrial cities. Obviously, a hundred years, hundred and fifty years later, but the reality was that real wages dropped for the first 50, 60 years. Women who'd actually been doing piecework at home in their you know, farm labour in cottages lost that work to factories, and it was a distressing time. But Society adjusted, and we had, you know, obviously the great philosophies of the 19th century were born. Whether it's kind of liberalism or um, Adam Smith or Marxism and socialism, they came along to kind of adjust uh, society to what machines were were delivering. And I suspect we're probably going to go through the same sort of period, you know, for the next decade or two. And we're probably seeing it already, where um, people are wondering what's happening to work in terms of the gig economy, um, you know, social dislocation. Uh, until we adjust to a, to a new reality. So I think we're probably going, going to go through the same period of destruction. But I think Callum's right. It's going to be very much how we look at work and how we look at leisure. And the other thing to remember is it's not just about technology. It's going to be about demographics of, uh, of people fundamentally living longer and living healthier. So they're going to have to uh, pace themselves and, uh, and live life quite differently. Mm. No, that's, it, it, it's kind of fascinating. And I, I had a conversation last night with somebody which sort of brought home to me sort of the unex- the way that the future throws up unexpected uh, implications for work so i was talking to somebody whose daughter had trained as a as a ballet dancer and spent 15 years doing that etc then succeeded in becoming a ballet dancer found that being a ballet dancer is so poorly paid she didn't want to stay with it and she now works as a personal trainer earning really really quite a lot of money at a very young age. And I thought, well, I don't know whether it was, you know, 10 years ago, you know, the idea that you could work as a personal trainer and really survive and and, and thrive economically would have seemed sort of impossible. And I, I suppose I'm just wondering about, you know, human ingenuity of trying to create areas of convenience for ourselves or areas of pleasure and, and work that actually will be will be invented I mean, um, you know, when you're thinking about that from from your perspective, Callum, presumably there's a whole raft of work that will be created that humans will be required for, or, or do you not see it like that? I, I'm very suspicious of the magic job draw, which is the idea that when machines take over our existing jobs, we will open this magic job draw and out will fly all these wonderful new jobs. And we can't tell you what they are at the moment because the technologies that will enable them haven't yet been invented. It isn't what happened in the past. We all think that because we have web designers and, as you say, personal trainers, that everybody's doing a different type of job now than they used to do in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. It's not really true. An analysis shows that in that 90% of all the people working in America today are doing jobs which existed in 1900. The People who are web designers, user experience architects and so on are just a very thin sliver on the top. We haven't actually invented many new types of jobs. What we've done is we've expanded the existing categories of jobs because past rounds of unemployment, which have been mechanisation on the whole, they've just replaced muscle jobs mostly, um, have led to more wealth in, in the economy. There's been, a, as Angus said, there's been a very painful disruption. The pause he talked about is the Engels pause. And um, so it's very painful, but eventually more wealth in the economy and therefore more demand for people to do work. And it was work that already existed. Now, that doesn't mean to say that the future might be different, might not be different. We might open the magic jobs drawer, but I don't think it's particularly likely. 
And I think we're going to have to accept the at least the distinct possibility. This is the key, really. It's a distinct possibility that very large numbers of people are going to be unemployed in a generation or so. If that is going to happen, then people are going to realise it within, say, the next 10 years or so. There'll be a panic. And the panic, I think, will be caused by self-driving cars. At the moment, you hear stuff in the press all the time about robots taking our jobs and then later on turning into the Terminator and killing us all. And, and you sort of shrug your shoulders and say, that's all a bit crazy, I'm going to ignore it and get on with my life, which is a very sensible, rational approach. But when people see self-driving cars running around everywhere and they know that their friend Bert, who was a van driver, and their friend Eileen, who was a lorry driver, have lost their jobs uh, to these very clever machines, they will connect the dots. And whether they're an architect or working in a factory or a warehouse, they will say, hmm, uh, if they can do that, they're going to come for my job. So there'll be this panic. And that's what really worries me. We need to be ready uh, with a plan for what the post-jobs society looks like, the post-jobs economy. We need to be ready with that plan before the panic hits. And as I say, I think we may have maybe 10 years before that happens. So I I suppose, you know, it it can often seem like the future is something that's that's already formed and is is sort of arriving kind of relentlessly but i i mean i remember when i was traveling in india when i was young and um having uh, i grew up quite near you actually uh, angus because i grew up in uh, um in berry um so you know familiar with the sort of industrial heritage of 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 that area of of the world and one of the things that i was conscious of in india was that you know there were a lot of there was a lot of work created simply for social cohesion so the you know there was a sort of bureaucracy that was invented in order to kind of if you like just kind of keep people busy and and is it the case that that you know if work performs some fundamental role in in human and social life that actually we should be shaping and designing the future more directly rather than if you like letting the the machine learning and the the ai somehow dictate our our future i think the idea of make work is is a terrible idea there's a nice story about um a leading economist milton friedman who goes to see a building site in china and there are people digging a canal with shovels and he says to them, why don't you give them uh, bulldozers? You'd get the, work, get the job done in a, in a tenth of the time. And the foreman said, oh, well, we want to make sure there's enough jobs to go around. So Milton Friedman says, well, in that case, why don't you give them teaspoons? That would slow it right down. The idea of make work is, I think, repulsive. You know, digging holes in the kitchen and then taking them out into the garden. It, it, that's not what we should be doing. If we get this right, if we transition successfully to a world in which humans don't have to do jobs, we could have another renaissance. We could have humans liberated to do the things that they want to do and to do the things that will give them really fulfilling lives. Inside everybody, there is a sportsman, an adventurer, a painter, a a dancer. And at the moment, everybody goes to jobs, to their jobs, you know, nine to five every day. It crushes the soul out of them and they have no energy for anything. Let's take the jobs away and liberate the humans. Mm. Uh, Well, and Angus, from a from a kind of point of view where you sit, I mean, do you feel that that, that work does perform some role um, that's that's more than just, if you like, a kind of I'll say drudgery or suffering, but actually, you know, probably in your own work, you you probably derive an awful lot of reward and fulfilment from what you do, and and do you feel work does have some 
enduring value, almost irrespective of what happens with technology? I suppose my own, you know, working life it illustrates the positive nature of, t- of technology. Uh, and I'm actually a, 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 a very positive about the, the, the future of, you know, mankind um, combined with technology. But just one of the reasons I got interested in this subject, I mean, four or five years ago, when I started working life in London in 1985, and I started life as, a, as an analyst in a strategy consulting firm, and I actually just sat down one afternoon I mapped out my 12-hour day back in 1985, and it started with me going down to, um, uh, to, to, a, to a library we had in the basement, and we had six librarians, uh, people who were librarians there, and they gave me some documents uh, on uh, called microfiche. On, if, if, if any of you podcast listeners knows what a microfiche is, I'd be impressed. But these were kind of uh, blue flimsy plates that had data on them before, uh, before computers were widely available. And say I was asked to analyse 50 uh, businesses in that financial performance, I'd look through a lot of these microfiche, I'd write down in a, a notebook uh, the relevant financial information. That would take me through the morning quite nicely. Come the afternoon, I'd take out my trusty HP12C calculator and do a few hours worth of calculations on that because we had two IBM 286s in the whole building and you couldn't get on them. Uh, so come evening, I'd, I'd done some analysis, done a bit of thinking, and I produced three or four precious slides that I would be showing to a client the next day. I would spend two or three hours with people called production ladies who would actually type up on asset, overhead acetates the slides. I would cut out silver, uh, cut some other coloured cellophane to stick on bar charts. And that was my 12-hour day. And I asked one of my, um, a few years ago, I asked one of my kind of graduate colleagues to do exactly the same job. And it took her 40 minutes. So my 12-hour day had been reduced to 40 minutes. And what had happened was all the drudge work is now done by a machine, allowing my colleague to be, you know, um, potentially, you know, 12, 15 times more productive, but spend time doing what uh, humans should be doing, which is that kind of thinking and actually understanding patterns and understanding human implication of things rather than the drudge work. And I think the interesting thing about what happened in my line of work is back in 1985, there were... 8,000 management consultants in Britain. There are now 188,000. So it didn't destroy a type of job. It actually enhanced it. So I think we can see those patterns across the economy. So I'm actually positive about um, about technology, probably like Callum, just coming at it from a, a different angle, actually being very, very positive and actually allowing humans to do what they are better at and obviously also allowing them not necessarily to be in the office 12 hours a day. If you can do it in five hours mm-hmm. a day uh, with technology, that's what we should be doing. Great. So, so just sort of getting to the the kind of title of the this particular episode and thinking about the seven year olds of today. So, because you know, uh, you know, I would I would say this the future we're talking about is going to affect us three probably modestly. I assume, assume irrespective of of how it plays out for each of us. But you know, thinking about a seven year old today in say Spain or Taiwan or Nigeria, and maybe those places will produce different outcomes. How should or how should schools and parents be preparing those seven year olds today? through education for the for the future that we're talking about. Callum, maybe you can pick that one up. Sure. So I have a slightly heretical view about education because most people, when there's a big change happening in society, and obviously these days there's always a big change happening, uh, say, mm. well, let's reform education. Let's, we need to reform education. We need to do this and that and the other. And the, the problem is you can't. The education system is extremely good at resisting reform. 
And so it never it never works. But the good news is I don't think it needs to, because I think it's doing, broadly speaking, the right thing. Uh, as we go forward, that seven-year-old needs to understand computers better than their predecessor does. But I think it's a mistake to say that all seven-year-olds should be thinking about becoming coders. Uh, machines are increasingly producing their own code, and deep learning uh, machines are actually producing their own code as well. So it's not at all clear that, that coding is a sustainable career. It might be, but it might well not be. The other thing that people say is, well, machines don't have consciousness, therefore they don't have empathy, and therefore the jobs that humans will do will be the, the empathy jobs like nursing and therapy. But experience again shows that's not really true. In Japan, they're ahead of the curve with the greying of the population. They don't have any truck with immigration and they're quite technophile. So they're running out of people to look after their, their growing elderly population and they're using robots increasingly. And it turns out the older people really like being looked after by robots. Um, you can tell them the same joke a million times a day and it just doesn't care. <laughs> so um, I don't think that the two siren calls of everybody becomes a coder or everybody becomes a nurse are correct. I think either we will solve the problem of how to transition to a post-job society or we won't. If we don't, then you've got other things to worry about other than education. If we do, then an awful lot of people are going to live lives with a huge amount of leisure. And what you need to make the best of a, of a, of a lot of leisure, you need a well-stocked mind. And so you should study the hard sciences, which teach you how the world works, the social sciences, which teach you how societies work, and the humanities, which teach you how individual humans work. And that's broadly speaking what the education systems do today. They don't do it perfectly, and they will go through a revolution because of AI, but not because of anybody deciding to take them through a revolution, but just because amazing new facilities will come online, which will make education startlingly more efficient. Um, mm. But until then, I think broadly speaking, education should plough on doing what it's doing. No, it's interesting because I, I was at Cisco's headquarters recently, and the there was a quite a senior um, engineer there, and he was talking about. Um, thinking about education essentially saying that the children at school now whether they're seven or five the world they'll come into in work will be so changed from what we experience today that actually what they need to learn is skills of adaptation creativity you know things that if you like the education system is somewhat dismissed but but actually trying to navigate in the world that they're going to come into is is going to be what's required. And and um, uh, Angus, what's your feeling about the seven year old in in Spain or Taiwan or or Nigeria today? Um, well, last uh, last year by by the British government uh, at Deloitte to take a a very detailed look actually what um, what skills and knowledge and aptitudes the economy needs more of and what it needs less of in the future. And that would apply to seven-year-olds, but it would apply to 18-year-olds, 21-year-olds coming to the workplace, and indeed 40-year-olds needing to, to retrain. Um, and we took a really detailed look at all 370 jobs in the UK, as they're, as they're classified by the government. And we looked at that, on, if you imagine, on one side of the matrix, and on the other side, we looked at 120 sets of skills and aptitudes that go with those jobs. Uh, and the conclusion number one was, if, if you look at the last 15 years in the UK, some things, that, some things have de declined precipitously in what jobs need, and they, they, you won't be surprised. That's the ability to use manual, manual dexterity to repair things or just physical strength, as machines have done more of that. 
Um, what was the surprise was actually what's grown most in the economy, you can say this fairly, fairly unequivocally, was actually knowledge of psychology, coaching, caring, medical skills has, grow, has actually grown faster than STEM. So STEM being science, technology, engineering oh. and maths, which have grown, but been actually outpaced by, if you like, very well-structured soft skills. So I'm not surprised by your um, your story of your friend, your friend who re- re- retrained as a uh, as a uh, personal coach, because that's actually been one of the highest growth jo- single jobs in the country in the last 15 years. So the conclusion was it's actually very highly developed, structured people skills, which are actually growing fastest, which actually, if you think about what machines are doing, technology is doing, perhaps it shouldn't be a surprise because, you know, as Callum says, they can self-code, they can do a lot more themselves. So it's actually things they can't do, which is where the growth is coming from. The other conclusion was that if you looked at out of 120 things that um, make up a, a, a working person, the 10 consistently, whether you're a lorry driver or an auditor or a, or, or a journalist, the 10 things that actually are the most important building blocks now and probably in the next 20 years are these, the communication skills, listening skills, speaking skills, the skills around working with other, other people and the critical thinking skills. And the, the way we explain it is that traditionally we've thought of you need three R's to, 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 as a seven-year-old, um, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic. You've got to now supplement those with three C's, which is collaboration, creativity, and critical thinking. Those those are the three things you will need. And whilst it's fairly clear you can't predict jobs 10, 20, 30 years from now, you can better, and it's probably more important, to, to actually anticipate the skills you need. And it's those three sets of skills, along with the traditional ones, that we need to be equipping seven-year-olds seven with. Mm. And, and do you think that different societies will prosper differently uh, in in this AI impacted world, I mean, will the developed or the developing world adapt better, uh, or, or there are particular countries or regions that you think either will struggle or or, or thrive? Maybe you can uh, pick that one up, Angus. Yeah, certainly. I, I think that's a really important question: which which parts of the world will will do best in this new AI world, and which which won't. Uh, I think the reality is it's societies which um, which have a high level of uh, education will do best and will, will prosper most. And those that don't and probably have high growth populations are going to be the ones that actually struggle. It'll also be the ones where governments actually see what's coming and actually actively have a policy to manage it, which will which will do best. So you know, to, to take a few uh, a few uh, you know, specific examples there. The, the United Kingdom has some benefits, uh, some advantages. One is we've got um, we probably punch above our weight in terms of the level of universities we have and the re- research establishments, uh, the research institutions we have. We've got leadership in some of the uh, parts of the economy, you know, worldwide, where you would really want leadership, whether that's you know media, creativity, higher education, professional services, a whole range of sectors where we really do punch above our weight, and those are going to be some of the safer jobs going forward. If you take another part of the world, for example, South Asia, that's a part of the world which is producing 1.2 million net new workers, 1.2 million a month for the next 20 years. So that's a lot of people going into uh, the South Asian economies, economies which are based uh, on uh, on things like um, uh, clothing manufacture, where those sort of things are going to be very impacted by technology and actually brought closer back to the consuming markets in the West. 
So you can see some big gaps there in terms of skills and education and just the availability of jobs. The, the other point I'd make, and it's, it kind of relates to the earlier point on education, is I think education systems that um, put emphasis on uh, collaborative learning and creativity will be underpinned societies that, that flourish best. And it's very interesting, my experience in China, for instance, is that uh, the Chinese with probably 120 million middle, middle class people now, bigger than the US, big, the biggest in the world, are putting a huge amounts of their income into private education. So about 30% of, of an average middle class Chinese person's income goes into education. And they're really re-engineering their education system from a fairly hierarchical, you sit in a classroom and you don't ask questions, you, you study and you learn, to a, a system where they've deliberately looked at the UK education system and said, what we want to do is actually have playing fields, we want theatre groups, we want uh, uh, students working together with their teachers and actually asking questions uh, and collaborating. So they've, from a Chinese point of view, they've understood that's a different education system is going to be mm. needed in the future. They've made some deliberate steps to re-engineer on that basis. Yeah, and that's that's so interesting. And, and Callum, one of the things that's just sort of coming into my mind is is this. Uh, you know, when 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 we're talking and thinking about where things might, how to adapt and which parts of the world might adapt. I suppose if you look at the way that different um, cities and regions within the UK have either adapted or not adapted to the demise of manufacturing, do you think perhaps there's some lessons for us there? Um, because I, I imagine the, the implications of these, this profound change in what work means and what it plays in, in society will, will vary depending on how different um, areas adapt to it. And I just wonder if there's something that we've seen from the way those things have been successfully managed. Maybe if you look at somewhere like Brighton, which, where, where I think you, you live, um, that area seems to be um, doing well, you know, in terms of um, the, 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 the kind of modern economy. I was talking to somebody, again, uh, from Stoke-on-Trent, where things are not like that. Are, are there some kind of lessons from the past through that? I'm very sceptical. We don't know which industries will be affected first by technological unemployment, uh, if it is coming, as I think it probably is. Uh, and we don't know which regions will be affected first. And I think it's frankly a bit of a mugs game, trying to forecast the details of how it's all going to unfold. I prefer to stick at the, the bigger picture, which is we probably are going to need a different sort of economic system, not 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 destroying capitalism, not, not abandoning capitalism, but tweaking it fairly majorly because an awful lot of people will not be able to do jobs. And therefore, we need to uh, be able to sustain a very big fund transfer from the people who are still working and the people with assets to the people who are not working. And I don't think you can do that if prices of goods and services remain high. So I think one of the solutions for the, the future world is that we're going to have to move towards what I call the Star Trek economy, reducing the cost of all the goods and services that you need for a very good standard of living to very low, not, not free, but very low, so that, that that transfer can be afforded. How it happens, where it happens first, what order different industries go in, I think is absolutely unknowable at the moment. And if people want to spend their time thinking about that in great detail, <clears throat> then that's fine. But I think it's probably a bit of a waste of time. On the issue of, of which areas are going to benefit most from AI, um, I think probably the most important thing to say is 
as, as Angus said earlier, there is a duopoly in AI. Uh, the big tech giants in America, the GAFA, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, and plus Microsoft and um, IBM. And then on the other hand, uh, China with its government, which is plowing a vast amount of money in, and they also have three tech giants, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Those two countries are far out in the lead. And then Canada and the UK come joint third, a very, very long way behind. We ought to pay that more, pay that fact more respect and, and, and acknowledge it. We, a lot of people in the UK talk about the UK being a leader in AI. It is in some particular ways. We produce lots of great AI researchers. We've got lots of great AI startups. We've got DeepMind, although it's owned by Google. But in the big picture, the US and China are so far ahead of us that we are just left behind in the dust. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because if they figure out how to move to this new uh, post-jobs world, that pattern, that template will be copied around the rest of the world pretty fast and everybody will benefit from it. So I don't worry too much about who the runners and riders are, what, you know, who's, who's out in front. Uh, if you want to get excited about that, then clearly the US and China are way out in front. But I don't think it really matters that much. Hmm. OK. And, and I mean, so if you're a what we might call traditional uh, enterprise, Coca-Cola, Pfizer, HSBC, how should you be preparing for this new world, new world of AI-saturated work? Callum, maybe you think they shouldn't prepare because, frankly, you know, their, 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 their time with us is, is limited. No, no, I, I think they absolutely should prepare. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I chair a conference every year about uh, how to deploy AI in business, and it's very interesting. This year's conference, which happened about three weeks ago, was, was quite different in tone. Previously, the year before, people were saying, yeah, we can tell AI is becoming important. Uh, we need to get our heads around it. What is it again? And now um, people are saying, well, we've tried this and we've tried that and this didn't work and that didn't work and this has been really successful. So things have moved on and that's very encouraging. There's a joke in the AI world that um, deep learning is a bit like teenage sex. It is, um, everybody's talking about it, but not very many people are doing it. And, and that's because it's very hard. You need vast amounts of compute power, you need vast amounts of data, and you need some of the very smart people who know how to wrangle the algorithms. And apparently there's only 10,000 of them in the world. So there, is, there are scarce resources, which is why you typically only see really powerful deep learning in, in places like Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Um, and so their search and their uh, translate services, their photo recognition services are frankly miraculous, and not too many other people have got them. But that's changing. It is democratizing. Uh, they've open sourced a lot of their own tools, and they're now actually sending out many of these, these very expensive people that they've recruited at great, great cost as consultants to large firms to help them deploy it. So if you're running Coke or um, Nor or somebody, you should definitely, you, you should already definitely have teams of people looking at where machine learning and other forms of AI could be deployed in your business, what problems they could solve, working out how you're gonna get the resources, are you gonna buy them or build them? Uh, and, and if you haven't started doing that yet, you are in some trouble because you've got competitors who have. Um, you know, sort of chatbots, data analysis, robot, robotic process automation. These things are happening now. And uh, if you're in one of those large companies, you should be on it. Hmm. And Angus, do you, is, it, is it possible there could be some kickback or is that just a kind of uh, a sort of temporary reaction against machine learning and AI? Could there be? I mean, I, I, I noticed there's 
you know, we're, we're constantly talking about human beings' relationships with with technology and um, digital detoxing and so on. Is is there going to be? Is this just a sort of relentless process, or or could we see some kickback? Well, I think it's happening. Um, to be honest, Paul, I think it's happening right now. It's not. In some ways, it's not as articulate, if you like, as if you think mm. back to what happened in the in the first industrial revolution. You know, you know, machines being destroyed and you know, Luddites and captains swing. But it, it, I, I, I actually strongly believe it's happening. Um, I mean, I did some work um, a few years ago with two Oxford University leading lights on the subject of, of the future of work, Carl Benedict Frey and, and Michael Osborne. Uh, and we, we, we looked at um, area by area in the UK as to what the likelihood of uh, job automation would be. And that ranges from a quarter of jobs in central London being, from a technology point of view, at high risk of going in the next 10 to 20 years to you know, 40% in the northeast of England. Um, and and that, that, that work, you know, was of interest. Now, we don't really do, we don't do politics at Deloitte, but somebody else took our work right after the, uh, the, the vote on the Euro- European Union referendum, the Brexit vote last year. And they took the same work and they plotted it against the, um, uh, the, the Brexit results, either remaining or leaving, by electoral district. And there was an extremely strong correlation. So parts of the country uh, with relatively low risk of jobs disappearing at the moment voted overwhelmingly to remain Cambridge or central London. And those with the highest um, risk of uh, job displacement because of technology were the the, the strongest to actually leave the European Union. Uh, And in fact, Carl Benedict did the same work after the US presidential election and found a very strong similar pattern. Uh, parts of the United States with the highest risk of jobs going, truck drivers' jobs, and you know, manufacturing jobs voted for President Trump, and other areas voted uh, voted for Hillary Clinton. So uh, I think you can't exactly prove the causality, but it seems to me that behind a lot of um, a, a sense of distress, uncertainty about the future, causing people to vote against the status quo, is a fear about, about jobs going. Mm-hmm. So I think it's there. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you move to other parts of the world where um, there's potentially huge job dis- displacement like China. And, of course, um, they, they don't have the same luxury of multi-party democracy to, to, to vote uh, to vote on the issue. But you could see social and political arrest, uh, unrest manufacturing, uh, manifesting itself in, in, in other ways. So I think we're all sitting on something which is, could be quite un- uncomfortable for the political status quo if there isn't an explicit way of actually tackling, uh, tackling this, this question. Which is why, I mean, and I suppose this is true for what both of you are saying and what we've been talking about, why um, government policy, government action, some um, sense of, I mean, this word transition, you know, how do we transition from where we are to whichever scenario um, is coming is going to be so key. So um, we've only got time for one more question. So it's really just a kind of personal question. Um, You know, when you're when you're looking at AI in your own work, just give me an example of of the way that in your own work uh, that it, it, it pleases you most. Um, Callum, do you want to um, just give me your your uh, one example from your from your own life? Google Translate, which has become little short of miraculous. And we've now got the bagel fish. But I just want to add one other thing um, relevant to what you just said. Governments should be thinking about how we make this transition. I believe that no, there is no concerted group working full time on the question of is technological unemployment likely and if it is how do we deal with it what's the best outcome we need to have groups doing that we need think tanks and research institutes 
and now is the time to set them up. Yeah, and um, I, I, thank you. And, and Angus, um, what's your uh, example and any any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean sim- simply put, it's probably the example I gave gave earlier in the podcast, which is the fact that my twelve uh, hour day is now a forty minute day, allowing you know, me to do a lot more interesting things. So I'm truly grateful to, to technology for having enabled that during my working life. My my concluding thought would be, uh, we've we've talked about technology and the future of work. It's hugely important technology. It's not the only game in town. And I would put um, equal emphasis on, on changing demographics in somewhere in the, in the Western world. Uh, and, mm. and certainly I've, I've been quite influenced in my thinking by Professor Linda, Linda Grattan at London Business School, who, who recently wrote The 100-Year Life. And the point she makes is that um, the seven-year-olds we're talking about today, half of them will live to be 103 uh, if they're in the UK or if they're in Japan, they'll live to be 107. They'll, they'll be healthier longer. Uh, and because of changes in pension and you know, the need to, 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 to save up for a longer life, they're going to have to work into their 80s. So it's not just about technology. It's about fundamental changes in demographics. And I think it'll probably probably gets me to a conclusion. I imagine somebody like Callum, which is, we, you know, we've thought about the working world in a very industrial way since the Industrial Revolution. So you go, you, you go to school, you get educated, you work, you retire for a little bit and then you die. And the reality is we're going to have to see a much more transitional uh, working life because of both technology and technology, meaning you've got to learn new skills quickly, but also just to be able to pace, pace yourself to, into, while you're working into, into your 80s and pay for your, a longer retirement. So there's a lot of fundamental things alongside technology that means that we're going to have to think about work fundamentally differently. Mm. And that and that reminds me of um, I mean the Economist had a, a fascinating article a few months ago um, about this this group in society who they talked about who were they certainly weren't young they're in the sort of late fifties sixties um, early seventies but they're not old in the sense that it used to mean and they called them the owls the older working less and still earning and i wonder whether if you you take some of the ideas we've been talking about take away the older idea if we have people working less still earning or or you know we haven't even got into the whole subject of you know universal basic income and so on and how you support people but maybe that's part of the adjustment that we need to make but Thank you so much, both of you, for such a fascinating conversation. And um, I've got a whole host of questions I haven't had time to ask you just because the conversation's been so fascinating. So, Callum, thank you so much for for coming on and for for sharing your your fascinating thoughts. And and Angus, um, for your contributions, it's been a delight to talk to both of you. Great. You're welcome. It's good fun. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. If you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com and thank you for listening.